You're listening to Sascapes, a podcast featuring the stories of arts, culture, and heritage in Saskatchewan. I'm Kevin Power. Join me as Sascapes hits the open roads of Saskatchewan. First stop, Willow Bunch, a small community in south-central Saskatchewan with a big history. I was speechless when I arrived at the massive Willow Bunch Museum. This is an historical treasure and a stunning piece of architecture. A convent, a boarding school, and home of a gentle giant, this building itself celebrates its centenary this year, and I am so glad that my guests opened its doors for me. You have got to visit this place. So today we are creating a podcast from the Willow Bunch Museum in Willow Bunch, Saskatchewan, and joining me is Doris O'Reilly. Doris, thank you. Oh, you're welcome. Pleased to meet you and have you come to our little town. Thank you. So are you originally from Willow Bunch? Yes. Yes, I was born and raised out on a farm. Right. I've been in this district, except for maybe about the first six years of my marriage. We lived in Scout Lake, which is only about 15 miles away from here, and then my dad wanted to retire from farming we decided to buy his farm and I moved back home and I've been here since <laughs> wow and the population of Willow Bunch is 281 ish something like that right. yes it's shrinking but uh, we're very much alive and we're very happy to welcome new people back to our town as well and you're obviously well you obviously know all every everybody in the town most everybody yes right right <laughs> So, um, and and you've been on the board of the museum for how long? Well, this last, I've been on for seven years consecutive now. I had been on previously and off again, but uh, this last seven years now as, as president. And uh, now it's time for me to take my leave. So oh, so you'll be my stepping My term is up, down? yeah, so I'm stepping down officially at the end of May. Now, it's the 100th anniversary of the museum this year. Yes, the building itself, like the, right. not the museum, but the mm-hmm. building that we house all our artifacts is 100 years old this year. So did you purposely, strategically plan this so that your last year would be such a momentous year? <laughs> no, <laughs> I didn't. And when I proposed that I was leaving, they said, well, you've got to see this project through. So I said, mm-hmm. yes, I'll be stepping off, but as a volunteer, I'll stay on and see the project through because the celebration is will be held in August. I get the sense that it's a real labor of love to keep this building. Oh, it is. And I love history. I right. just, but it's time for me to back down and enjoy some of my own projects. Sure. So let's talk a little bit about the history of this, of this building. You mentioned that it was originally erected as a convent. Yes. The Sisters of... Sisters of the Cross. Right. And the first sisters that came and opened the convent and established it came directly from France. Because this was strictly, more or less, a Francophone 
community for many, many years. It isn't no longer. You're, right. you're going to look now to find the francophones. Is that right? Yeah. There's very limited number of people that speak both. They'll have spoken French as they're learning, but as it goes, even in like my family, my children, we have five children. They all married Anglophones, so we become very So <laughs> are you concerned that's a bit of a lost culture? It is. And that's the reason probably that I stayed here and worked in the ladies before us that's made sure that everything was bilingual. We had the French and the English, and I'm very strong. And right now I'm the only board member that speaks French here. Wow. So you're, you're representing um, the French, the French Canadian a- yeah. aspect of, of Willowbunch. Trying. That's a big responsibility. <laughs> it is. <laughs> So when you guide the tours, do you have the opportunity to um, give them in French? Mm-hmm. And we have people who request to have a tour in French, and then I will come. There is another lady that she's a semi-retired school teacher that will come and help us out, and she's very good for French. She's, she's also French. But, uh, yeah, like we've had people coming in from Quebec, and sometimes from Europe, some different countries mm-hmm. that will, are more comfortable with French, so then I will. Come on and help sure. out. The Sisters of the Holy Cross. Um, do that. Do, do any? Does that order still exist? Uh, yes, they're all mostly retired and uh, in uh, retirement houses in Winnipeg, uh-huh. in Manitoba. There's houses there that they. This where most of them their mother house was, or you know the main house. Mother General would stay, and and now they're in uh, retirement suites. There is one. That is still quite active. Sister Lucille she's in Carlisle, Saskatchewan, mm-hmm. and she still helps at a, a parish as a parish assistant, I believe. But the rest are all very elderly. Right. Yeah. Did any of them have an opportunity to come and visit you um, since your term as president of the museum? Have any come back? Um, not really, but we have three that have agreed that are of able to come back, and they will be here on, on our Oh, they celebrate. will? Yes, we've invited them back, especially the other ones are too old, too elderly, sure. and physically unable to come, so. Right. So, yeah. They'll have amazing stories to tell. Oh, we hope so, yes. Wow. <laughs> so, um, at what point did the convent become um, a boarding school? From the very start, and that's uh-huh. why it was established, because there was no school systems here at the time, and they opened it as a boarding school for both boys and girls. So the third story was the dorm, and it remained as boys and girls till the early, no, what I would say, 1920s or some kind, no, maybe later. Uh, in Gravelberg, there's a collège Mathieu, mm-hmm. and they had no, their doors open for boys. So then it was more than just the girls that stayed here until into the 1950s with borders. And the, the boys were going to uh, Collège Mathieu if they wanted to be in a boarding school, you know, to be there. As, and that's and with the French uh, teachings as well. Sure. So where would they, where would the boarding school uh, would attract children from all over the province? All over, all over. Yeah, because uh, there was francophones all over, and if they knew this was a place where their children could be taught in French or learn French and be able to read and write. And it must must have been a drawing card, but it was open to everybody 
there was of any religious denomination or mm. any language. Like it, they never ever specified that you have to be French. No, it was it was a school system. Are there people living in Willowbunch who went to school when it was a boarding school? Yes, here? I did. The next door neighbor here, right to Cecile Merritt, she was actual boarder, and she was giving us some stories to think. Oh, you've got to come and tell us some of these stories so we can, you know. Have them down on paper because, yeah, she was telling us a few stories. Wow. And were they positive stories? Sometimes we hear nightmare uh, stories of boarding yes, schools. Yes, positive and not. Most, mm-hmm. uh, it, a lot of them find it was a hardship because they were away from home. And the nuns were very strict. They had, you know, rules and guidelines. Sure. And, yeah, I think it was very hard. And the younger ones, especially, especially it was... Traumatic, I would say, because for some of them, they came from far away. Mom and dad didn't have much money, so sometimes they were here in September till Christmas at least, and some stayed over Christmas till the next June, whenever holidays. So they were taken away from their families, and, you know, it was there's sad stories. There's good stories. I mean, you always look for the negative, but they were more more or less well looked after, but it was not... The home, sure. You know the homey feeling, right? And yeah. that's probably true for all boarding schools. Yeah. Really, it's right. a bittersweet yeah. situation. <laughs> so, at what point did it cease to become a boarding school altogether? I think in about nineteen fifty-eight or something like fifty-nine. Because I know I came to school here in Willowbunch just to finish my high school, so grade 10, 11, 12. and when I came in grade ten, it was still a boarding school, which was in fifty. Let's see, 56, 55. So, I'm, yeah, still was still a boarding school, I would say, to probably 58. What was the relationship like between your school and the boarding school? Did you ever have the opportunity to fraternize with members of the boarding school? Uh, when, I, when I came to school, yes, because we, we went to the same classes. Uh-huh. You know, the kids that were in boarding were in my grade, I then you, yeah. For me, it was a big culture change because I came out of a little country school, where I was at that time the oldest, kind of the mother hen over the younger people, mm-hmm. and used to very quiet country life. And you came to town and it was like, oh, my God. I felt like the country bumpkin. <laughs> but it was okay. Right. But it was a period of adjustment. Right. Yeah. So did they hold classes here as well or was oh, it yes. just strictly for boarding? No, no, no. Besides the chapel here, mm-hmm. and then I think Mother Superior had a room of her own, her office, and then the entrance there. The rest were all classrooms. So, right. yeah, and there's big classrooms. And we're sitting in the original chapel. Yes, we are. Yes. It, they modernized it because you can see sure. the, the, the marble and that the nuns had it modernized. Mm-hmm. Uh, what we did at what point, they had modernized it to the point where the, the altar was turned and the priest is facing the congregation when they're saying mass. Uh-huh. And we thought, well, if we're going to go back to the original, we turned it back. And we would like to have a mannequin with the priest standing there, right. not to say mass, but something of some of our projects that are going to be done. So, yeah, we wanted to bring it back to more of the original, uh, but uh, it's very, uh, very modern when you see the marble. But we're surrounded by a lot of vestments. Yes. Um, and they were donated over, over the years? Over the years uh, f- from the parish, our own Catholic parish here, and then some of the priests and the that were from here, ordained here, and then went out after they passed away. The family brought some of the, some of their uh, 
vestments and that for us to have is to show people how they, they dress because some of it is older. It's not something they still use, but sure. I think like the the alb there, I think it was handmade and yes. it's, it's gorgeous. We just think it has to be about put out for people to see. Uh, but uh, we're mm-hmm. ecumenical. So if you've noticed, we have artifacts from the United Church, yes. Presbyterian Church, and we're trying to get more on our Lutheran Church. Right. Churches within the community, yeah. But because we are now a museum, it's every faith. Anybody who has something that they would like saved that pertains to our history, they're all accepted. The confirmation uh, dresses are really beautiful. They're original. They're original, and you'll see there's different sizes, and there's a little story that goes with that. Mm-hmm. They were found in the rectory where the parish priest lived. Now, when it came to first communions or confirmation. Not all parents had money to have to be able to buy a nice little white dress, and Father didn't want for anybody to ever be singled out. Mm-hmm. So he kept their little assortment of dresses. And if there was somebody that showed up that didn't, then he had one different sizes that probably would fit. <laughs> That's a little story you heard. Oh, oh. Yeah, I think it's cute. <laughs> and who was the priest? Who? Oh well, it was a variety of priests. Sure. I'm not sure. Uh, that would go back probably in the early. I think after the 50s, they didn't want, they didn't oblige you to have a white dress for First Communion. So mm-hmm. it was prior to, probably in the 40s, 30s and 40s. Hey, it's Kevin. I hope you're enjoying the episode so far. Just a quick reminder that the Sascapes podcast is available for free on your favorite podcast app, or you can stream it from your browser. Check out the show notes for the link. On the Sascapes homepage, you'll notice something new under the logo called Sascapes Plus. You can't miss it. There's a big button saying support with a heart icon next to it. I'd love it if you could click on that button and help keep this podcast series going. When Sascapes launched in May 2014, it was the first podcast in the province celebrating arts, culture, and heritage. In fact, you'd have been pretty hard-pressed to find any Saskatchewan podcast. So I'd like to think that we paved the way. It's been because of your support that this podcast is now in its ninth year. Okay, that's it. Enjoy the rest of the episode. You must see a lot of visitors come here from from all over. Do you have any memorable stories of, of some of them that have walked through the doors? Well, I wouldn't know them by name, mm. but we had a, one gentleman two years ago, and he was a, a world traveler. He had been over all over Europe and all over, and he gave us a very good compliment. He said, you know, I've traveled and I've seen... I can't tell you, he says, how many museums, but he says, by far, you are one of the very best museums that I've ever visited. So we thought, good for us. Isn't that wonderful? <laughs> yeah. We get people from all over the world. We have maps out there so people can pin where they come from. And sure. Like Russia, Haiti, South America, and Africa. There's not a country that doesn't have a visitor from somewhere that has been here. So clearly and they'll come they're able this, to find Yeah, you. and they'll come. Like one uh, last year, a friend, a university that was in university in Vancouver had a friend come over from Moscow, and they specially came to Saskatchewan so they could come and see this museum. Like, I mean, she had ties. Her family had ties to a little bunch, but you have got to come and see the giant. 
Edouard Beaupre yes. brings in a lot of visitors. Let's talk about him. It's a, it's a very sad story. It is, yes. Uh, when you, if you get a chance to talk to Nicole, she'll be able to give you a lot of, because she's a descendant. Mm-hmm. I, and, but yeah, it was very sad. Uh, he went out and joined the circus because he wanted to be a cowboy. There was no horses big enough for him. He went down east. And any money he had extra, he would have his agent send back to his parents. And then when he died, the parents wanted to bring him home and have him buried. And they realized we can't afford it because it was a big body. To put mm-hmm. that on the train, mm-hmm. it would have cost them. Well, they had no money. So they got in touch with the agent. And his agent said, oh, have no worries. I will have him buried. So the family always thought that he had been buried in St. Louis, Missouri. was where he had passed away. But lo and behold, now history tells us that uh, the agent took him on the road and kept on making money. He'd get shut down, moved on to another town. The body was transported back to Montreal, and again, it was exploited and then abandoned in a factory for years. And all this time, the family thought, even like the, the descendants here, the nephews and nieces that lived here, Till one day, uh, a lady in Montreal had gone to the University of Montreal where his body eventually went and stayed and was telling us Cecile Beaupre, who was a niece of the giant, you know, your uncle isn't buried. He's in the University of Montreal. She said, no, no, you're not. She said, you best go see for yourself. And there he was in a glass display, stark naked, not pretty to see because he had been mummified, so it was like skin and bones. And I think people had raised concerns about that, so they had put a loincloth on him, you know, to mm-hmm. cover his privates. But they worked for I don't know how many years. I forget now. It's on the posters. But to get the body back. And finally, uh, the university said, well, we, will, we don't want him exploited anymore, so if you agree, we'll have him cremated. You can come and get the ashes and then give him a decent burial, which... It eventually happened in 1970 after he had passed away in 1904. A long time to be. It is a long time. In, in 1970 is, is a while back, but it's not so far back that when we think of something like that, yeah. it's just unfathomable how, yeah. how the, was, they could allow something like that to happen. Yeah. Well, I think it was even more long, yeah, 1970. But anyway, it's in, in that area that where, you know, it was so long that uh, the family was just amazed that, you know, they had never been made aware of it. If you go into Quebec, a lot of people of Quebec will think that he was a Quebec giant mm. because a lot of the museums have some of his artifacts and that because his body was there and it was the nobody had ever gone back to see exactly where he came from. Eh? Right. But we do know he's in the church records. The first white child to be baptized in the church records here in Willamette. Wow. Yeah. And so Nicole is a descendant of the other descendants that mm-hmm. live. Her father was a nephew of the giant. Wow. And we still have one of Nicole's uncles that's still living. He's 87, 88. That's one of the last direct. And then there's, of course, all the, the grandnephews and grandnieces. There's lots of them. Right. And that is like just one branch, the Les Bronces, because Mrs. Uh, Edouard Beaupré's mother was a piche. And like with from her, her siblings and that, there's many Métis families that are no longer here, but there's Lewis Chartrands, and there's lots of others. But we don't, we would love to make a family tree on the giant. Sure. Someday. Sure. 
but it to keep a building like this operating um you know it's, it's a labor of love uh, where does funding come from to <laughs> whenever i say the word funding no matter who i talk to yeah. everybody smiles um as a museum it's 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 a, a big big commitment for us to stay here the building belongs to the town now it has changed hands a few times but the town now owns it it was given back to the town we actually pay 500 dollars a month rent to be able to have the two floors for our artifacts so oh. we have to do fundraisers and to keep to get the operating to do the stuff inside we work very hard to get grants yes. we've been fortunate to be able to get grant the granting and uh thank thank goodness to sas culture thank goodness to sas culture thank goodness for saskatchewan lotteries, lotteries. yeah yeah it's yeah. through them i mean it's it's hard work to get down and do those grants but yeah. mind you if you put your mind to it and do it and we We've been getting more and more grant money because they see that we are doing what we say we're doing, and but we couldn't operate without them. And it must remain. When you know, when you drive in, you're you're driving through, you know, farm after farm after farm, and then you pull into Willowbunch, and this building is is such an anomaly against the background. It it it, it must exist because it's so unique. So. Yeah, yeah, and we have such a diversified culture here you know we have so many different ethnic people and religions and languages and I mean we're all anglophones now we all speak English but if you go back to the culture because I believe we are the second oldest settlement in Saskatchewan after the Brett wow. so our history goes way back our first settlers were actually 70 some families that came from the Red River colony in Manitoba the displaced Métis. So they are really our first pioneers. They came in 1870, then the beginning of the 1900s, and that's when more of the people came from France, well, Europe, different countries, you know, Scotland, you can name this, you know, when you go through the books and you see where their history, where the families came from. But Mr. Jean-Louis Laguerre, who had trading posts here, was the first French-Canadian that came from Quebec, and he, of course, encouraged people to come. Uh, the first town settlement was called Bonneville, which was three miles east of town here. And there's uh, the, Mr. Bono had set up, you know, and there was a, a store, a general store, whatever, and there was people actually living. You can still see in the hillside where there was, you know, probably houses and built on just on the, the dirt floors. But uh, the priest had also established a a chapel, and there was a missionary that would go through. So when Mr. Jean-Louis Laguerre came, he had a trading post where golf courses and all. Oh, right. But he thought, well, I would like to establish a community and encourage people to come. So to do that, he donated 80 acres of land right here, set up Willowmunch, which was Tal de Sol, and it was a French. So Bonneville folded down and everything moved here. So, oh. so we're an old community. What uh, you had mentioned fundraisers as being one of the ways of of keeping this building mm -hmm. alive. So tell me a bit about those. Um, we'll serve pancake breakfasts uh, mm -hmm. the long weekend in August. Uh, 
sometimes on our Canada Day, uh, July 1st, we'll have a penny arcade or something just to bring people. And we'd like to have like an open house so people will just come. You know, we say thank you to them for helping us. We have served uh, beef barbecues. Mm -hmm. <laughs> served uh, this year, we've been asked to serve uh, beef on the bun supper for Farm Fest, the campaigns coming right. back with the Farm Fest in July. We've had trail rides. And then for many years, we've had, we had one lady that contributed six or seven handmade quilts that we would raffle. And then when she retired, there's another young lady that took on and she's done it for three, four years. And now we don't know, but yeah, we do raffles. We, <laughs> right. Yeah, we, we do what we can. And there's a hall here that you also um, use as a rental space. The hall rental space still stays with the francophones. The francophones were here before us, and they didn't need all the building, so uh -huh. that's how we got here. The original museum was housed in the old hospital, which soon got too small. And when the francophones obtained this building from the nuns, said, well, we don't need it. They wanted, they had a, a place for an office downstairs. They had the hall and the kitchen. So that, so they said to the museum, come on over. So it came, I don't know where the rent money came in. Like, like I said, I've been on in like since the last seven years, but I know we have been paying rent, but as soon as the town, because they have to pay the power, the, all the utilities, they decided that, hey, we paid rent to the francophones first. It started with the francophones, and then the town just allowed us to keep on right. with the same rates. Now, there are two floors that you talked about, yes. but there's more than just two floors to this building above that second floor. What exists? It's empty, but that was the dorm, the dormitory. But when this building was turned into a public place, they had to put in sprinkler systems. Uh -huh. And so to be able to establish that, they had to take the flooring off to be able to put all the pipe things and the, the electrical, because it's there's electrical, but some of it is very old. But right. they had to put in some new electrical. And the francophones used one floor for a while. They had offices of all kinds. So we worked around them and eventually, like they'd get projects, they'd get funding to bring in students to do special projects. And it was done here in Willowbunch instead of in Moosh or Regina or anything. They were bringing people here to do things. As our community gets older and the younger people move away, then we didn't have that opportunity. And also the Francophones lost a lot of their funding, government, federal government funding to do things. Hmm. So they were getting squeezed. So the museum was a way for helping them keep alive. But, again, it's, it's an aging population, and the Francophones are just about all gone. Wow. Our seniors are. And they move to other places for medical care and for housing and that. So it's a changing. So right, it evolves. Yeah. So it's going to be, and I'm finding I'm hard to evolve, so it's time to set, step down and let the younger generation take over. Sure, you know? but there's enough history that... that I hope that the, the history of the Francophone community here doesn't die as that evolves. I hope so, too. Yeah. And that was my goal, to stay on and try and keep a lot of this going. And it's worked. It's worked nice. But but I'm saying, you know, there's new people coming in. So we have to be open to new ideas. Sure. Yeah. Now, on my way in, I met two students, both of whom are part of um, different student work programs and... and uh, Andrew, I met downstairs, mm -hmm. and um, your Michelle. Michelle in the front. Um, so, 
this is something you pursue the, that the museum pursues to reach out to um, to students to have yes. them have them be involved here, mm-hmm. which is marvelous. How many years have you been doing that? At least oh, it's we've had students. There's been students here for I would say the last twenty some years because the people who were here before us, the older ladies, that they always maintain to have summer students because it frees us up. Otherwise, we're here continuously. We do it enough without having to be here, you know, from nine to five. Sure. So we always, we've always had, and it started only with high school students, but as like Jeunesse Canada now, we mm-hmm. can get somebody bilingual, which is very important for us here because we don't have many bilingual summer students here. Sure. So last year we had a girl come in from Ontario. This year we have Andrew coming in from BC, and they're bilingual. They can speak French and they can do the tours if right. I'm not around. And they know uh, they they actually have a desire to come here. They, oh it's, yes, it's well known oh. to them. Oh, then Andrew was ever so excited to come. Like I when could we tell. phoned, said, "Do you want a job?" He says, "Really? <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> yes, could tell. Yes, yes, very enthusiastic, and we get very good work out of them. You know, because they're. The maturity is there. We've always had high school students, mm-hmm. which we've had to train and train. And so every year we were training somebody new. And whereas with Michelle, I think we've had her for the last four years because we started her as soon as she was in grade nine and she's come back because we, we've been lucky. We have funding for three different and three different levels. Mm-hmm. So we have the high school, post-secondary, and the Jeunesse Canada to get the... Uh, right. Yeah. So we have two post-secondary, actually. Michelle and Andrea are both done one year of university so there's a school just behind us here is that the it's closed oh it is co- it looked rather abandoned when yes, i drove it by is. It. it our school closed in 2007 or 2008 because there was under 50 students going to school so there's no school in no. willow bunch no they're bust depending where they live uh some students are going to Cinnaboya. So they go up north and west, and the other ones are going south to uh, Coronac. That's the two closest, and they're about 25, 30-minute drive either way. So right. that's where our students are going to finish their school. Is there any um, arts or culture um, uh, uh, involvement in the community outside of the university, outside of the uh, museum? Now that the compines have they've made their... Their name, they're from Royal Bunch, and they always come back here. And uh, there's one of the daughters that stays on the family farm. The, the, the parents have passed away, so the children have accepted to keep the farm going. And they all contribute in whatever way they can, but they have this farm fest once a year. And they bring in people from Manitoba and all around who entertain us. Oh, good. And it started like it was just a, like a jam session. Now it's getting more programmed. There's admission. And this year, this last few years, they've had somebody see, serving uh, buffalo I on guess. the bun or whatever. Yeah. But this year, I think we're they've asked us, and we think we will be serving beef on the bun. Something that's easy, and because we never know how many people are going to show up. Sure. It depends on the weather. Right. Because it's outside. Yes. It's right on the family farm and the in the the farmyard. <laughs> we Canadians are very much weather dependent. <laughs> how many visitors would come through the, the museum in a season? In a season, anywhere from fifteen to two thousand. Wow. Last year was eighteen hundred and some. But wow. we've had we we reached a two thousand once. Yes. That's impressive. From all over the world. That's impressive. And your season you're open for roughly how many months of the season? Well, it's generally May fifteenth to September 
go to about September 30th. It used to be 15th, but, but you know, we start giving tours in April sometimes, and we're busy after in the fall till October quite often. Nicole and I are usually on call, mm -hmm. and we'll give tours anytime, night or day. Yes, that's <laughs> how I found you. I got the recording <laughs> to call you at home. Yes. So you're that accessible. Yes, we are. So what happens for you after you step down as president here? Oh, I probably will come on, finish some projects that we've put on the back burner and don't have time because we're too busy doing other stuff. So I'm hoping to be able to come back and I get volunteer. the feeling you're not going to be able to completely divorce <laughs> yourself from, from well, here. I don't think so, not for a year or two. But you have no plans to leave Willow Bunch and head not to now. the big city? No. We don't know. No, never the big city. Probably the furthest I would go to Cinnaboya. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a small, small town girl, I don't think so. Have you traveled often? We did a bit of traveling. Mm -hmm. uh, we went to Hawaii one year, mm -hmm. and then one time the, our oldest daughter and her husband went to the Cayman Islands to yes. work. So we took the opportunity and went to the Caymans. And have you gone to Quebec? Mm hmm. A couple yes. of times. Right. Yeah. And Andrea has a a brother that lives there, so we went to his wedding, and uh, yeah, I've been to Quebec twice, I think, and I had cousins living in Ontario, so I've been to Ontario, been to BC several times, we have two children living there, mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, Alberta. Uh, do you live on a farm here? Not, it, no. not any longer, no. But you had? Yeah, I was brought up on a farm, it's uh, my grandfather's farm, so when dad sold out, then it became our family farm, and our son took over from us, and he remained on it long enough to be able to get the 100-year uh, oh, certificate good. for being a 100-year-old family farm. Yeah. But our farming unit was very small, and he found that both he and his wife were working off the farm to support the farm. So time to move on. I think when you grow up, and people who grow up in small town, it's not surprising to talk to them to find out that they're very, very content with the size community that they, mm -hmm. they live in and they, they have no burning desire to no. to get lost in a big city. No. Uh, Andrea has family in, in Moose Jaw and one brother has a big house and sister has a living in a condo they just bought and oh, we have to go and visit. Fine. We went and visited and come home and Andrea says, I could never live in a condo. <laughs> <laughs> Not with all of this open space. No, exactly. And, and you know everybody here, you know? Yeah. You go have coffee. Well, now there are lots of new people that we don't always know because we're not in the same circle of friends. Mm -hmm. We know who they are, and I talk to them, and but we don't associate very much. And maybe that's something I don't like. Maybe we're kind of clicky. Mm -hmm. So maybe it's hard for the newcomers to, you know, right. to feel like they belong. Right. And that's something we need to have open-door policies. Right. Well, yeah. perhaps your fundraisers will be a catalyst to... To bring them to bring in. people yeah, together. Yeah, we have them, like some of them have come and volunteered to help us with our cleaning bees this spring. So, mm -hmm. yeah, it's just you have to reach out to them. It must be a huge job to clean this place. <laughs> well, yeah, it gets a cleaning in the spring and then the, our students keep the dusting and that. But it doesn't really get that dirty unless we have to open windows for air. But now we've gotten to right. the point where we have the newer portable air conditioners that, so we're not having to open windows and... It's not good either for artifacts. We're supposed to try and maintain good right. con condition, uh, air conditioning for them. But So is there something you're dying to do once you've, you're finished here, something that 
that you think, when I finish at the museum, I'm going to sink my teeth into, <laughs> into this. Into what? <laughs> into, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know. I mean, uh, maybe it's being, continuing to be active and keeping the, the, the oh, French-Canadian. I uh, believe in keeping culture. active. I think it's very important for seniors to do something. If you don't use it, you lose it. Yeah. And I'm, so I have, I learned many years ago to go on the computer and I own a computer and I do my own thing on that. I do a lot of, I help a lot of people do family research. We get lots of people that will write in or call and say, oh, my dad or my granddad. And of course, then I'm just like, uh, what do you call me? A history? Yeah. History hound detective. <laughs> I just like to get in there and try and help them find. You've no doubt done your own as well. I haven't had time. No. <laughs> then that's the next project. That's the next project. That's why I say I need to have time to do my things. I, I would like to take up and do more quilting. I do a little bit of quilting, but that's something to relax with. And yeah, I need to have time for myself. And Yours will be the next quilt that goes up. I would me. hope that I could make one next year to, to give to them, but. I need the time to do it. Is there a senior organization here? Um, that, we have, we have that, the Hills of Home. Uh-huh. Yeah. And tell me about them. They're quite active. They have their own little hall, and uh, they're, and these, like, are the newcomers that have come. They're no longer newcomers. They've been here many years, but they've come with new ideas. You know, they've started up bingos again. They have a potluck supper every Thursday, the first Thursday of every month, to get people together. It's very good. It's active. It's hard to get our younger people involved. Sure. Like they'll buy their memberships, but they don't always go. I shouldn't talk. <laughs> <laughs> I always find myself too busy. But right. yeah, but it's good. They can go play cards. There's a group that goes and plays cards every afternoon at senior hunter. And yeah. They're aptly named the Hills of Home. Isn't it? Lest anybody think that Saskatchewan is all flat. You only need to come to Willowbunch. It's stunning around here. You should see it when it's all green in summertime. And our park and our golf course, they're, they're hidden secrets that people don't really know about. We've got one of the best golf courses there is. Well, everybody has told me about it, so yeah. it's certainly on some people's yeah, radar. Yeah, it is. And so are you a golfer? Uh, goofer? I, <laughs> I, I golf for fun. Yeah, I, I golf a little, not much. Right. But I do like it. The ball goes somewhere out there. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it keeps me going, and I enjoy yeah. nature, and I enjoy the, the fellowship with people that are golfing as well. That's fantastic. It's so, it's so wonderful to come to small towns like this and see. You know, you tend to forget that that the very fiber of Saskatchewan is made up of communities like yours. There, it's not just Saskatoon and Regina no. that keeps this. And. That's the scary part because a lot of our little communities have disappeared totally. Mm-hmm. You know, they were vibrant and it's the centralization. They close your hospitals and they, because, oh, it's too small or your town's too small, whatever. And we've lost, like we lost the hospital. We are, the RCMP, we acknowledged, yes, when Cornac got the coal mine and there was a lot of people coming in, and they figured that it was better for the detachment to be in Cornac rather than Willowbunch. And we're well served from Cornac. I mean, mm-hmm. I have no complaints. But, you know, it's so we've lost two families there, you know, and the school closes. You lose all these school teachers. It's, it's really difficult to keep a small town going. Now, the museum has received its official designation as a heritage building. The building, yeah, it's a municipal heritage. It's not a... 
not that, what is it, if there's a, you know, there's two standards, but ours is only municipal because the roof was redone with tin, so it's not the original. Oh, right. But you have to, big building like that, and we were, we they looked a long time to find somebody that would do that roofing. Yeah, yeah. And wanted, where did they find the person? Uh, I'm not sure, but you know, there was a couple from here, they're no longer here, at, uh, Lloyd and Renee Dosh. They both went up there with this big lift and helped this one man that came by himself to replace the... No that, kidding. Yeah. It's it was, massive. Oh, it's massive. And it's high up there. Like, I mean, <laughs> I have a fear of heights. I wouldn't even look at them when they were up there working. <laughs> I was told that this building that I would be quite shocked when I saw just the, the size of this yes. building. They Nobody was kidding. It really no. is a must-see. And can you imagine this was built in the years before cranes and... And they built the walls and they built up. And, you know, we see some of the older pictures where there's actually these scaffolds that they've made and they were wor the workers. But who would, have, who would have comprised the bulk of the workers? Where did they come from? I think some of our, our the pioneers, the, men, the local people, the Métis were very strong in helping building. I know the churches and the schools and, and you know, right. whatever other available people there were. There would have been a lot of volunteer. Like, I'm sure there might have been one foreman. <laughs> You know, back in those days, there was not the, the quality is good. Yeah. But not the rules and regulations like they have to, right. the hoops they have to go through now, you know. But, but it got nevertheless, done. a huge job. Yeah. Building this. It's, it's had renovations inside. Like, you know, with, well, we have chip rock on the walls, so. Right. Yeah. But uh, it was a huge building to build. So you've lost a lot of Willow Bunch, but. You won't lose the museum, will you? There's nope. no danger of this building. Not as long as I'm around. <laughs> <laughs> Somebody at one time said, you know, that uh, we shouldn't bother keeping these old buildings. Because there's a lot of our history that's gone down to the, the bulldozer. Because nobody really wanted to, to look after it. So we're looking after this one. So we used the 125th anniversary as an occasion to contact these people that came back. Mm -hmm. These empires sent us your story. We worked on that for three years. You should see our history book. We got two volume wow. history book. Over 900 family histories that came through. And could have gone on, but you know, you have to have a cutoff. And some people start saying, when well, are you going to publish that book before I die? <laughs> what was it published through a publishing house? Yeah, Friesen. Friesen. Oh, great. I'll show you a copy. So it's available across. Oh, yes, yes. Can you get it across Canada? Is it on Amazon and things like that? You know, we should put it on yeah, Amazon. Yeah, you should. Absolutely. But we sell... Uh, like I was on that, I was editor of that book. Right, and that's a big job. We we had such a a big, like we say, there was over nine hundred family histories. We and we asked for deposits so we would know how many. Right. And it got to you know, if you order a thousand, it's this much that. So between the fifteen hundred, that maybe would have been more of a number. We ordered small. We still got like four or five hundred volumes. But we're selling them at a reduced price. At the time, we're selling them 100 Now they're $60. We sell at least $0.20 cents a year. And it's it was published in 98. See how old it is? And it's still... Newsflash, Saskatchewan. There's Willow Bunch history books available now yeah. at a reduced price. Yeah. <laughs> Three years of my life and my husband. If I wouldn't have had my husband to help me, we read every story that came through. Wow. And then we had a very good committee that 
And a young man by the name of Hugh Bono and his brother did all the typing. They put it on and they put it on the computer and they put it on disk. So it cut our expenses down because when we went to Friesen's in Manitoba, it was all on disk. The pictures were all numbered. Everything was set up. They just had to get into the book and printed. Wow. So we got a, a good deal, but Maybe some will sell to the uh, centenary. Oh, probably. Probably yeah. will. Yeah. You have yeah. to care. Yeah. Well, you all do. When I retired from work, I needed something to do. Mm -hmm. And it was a good outlet for me because mm -hmm. I wasn't ready to be. You yeah. know, you work 20 years in the public. You yeah. just don't go home and sit and do nothing. Right. So, uh, yeah, it was good for me. It's time to yeah. move on. Good for you. Yeah. Well, I hope that every time I do a recording from inside one of these buildings, somebody listens to it and that sparks a whole new generation, a yes. whole new audience. These must stay alive. They oh, are. Yeah. They are. Because if you don't keep the history alive and make it available to the younger people, then it's lost and it'll never come back. You know? Yeah. Yes, we have, we have a treasure here. I have to admit. Here's to history. Yes. <laughs> Here's to maintaining history. Yes, it's. Thank you so much for telling me a, a bit about your your life here and, oh, and the museum. It's wonderful to to meet you and to hear your stories. I'm sure that there are a lot more. There's probably a few more, yeah. <laughs> but I'm but I'm happy to be able to at least get a little bit of information out there about you. I'm happy I was able to. I was just a little bit leery about giving it an interview, but this is great. Yeah. I've, I've not found one person yet who has said no to talking to me. Everybody has a fascinating story to tell, even if they don't think it is. Yes, I suppose. And you're, you're a life that, you know, is is woven into the fabric of Saskatchewan. You mm -hmm. are you are what makes Saskatchewan Saskatchewan. You are you are why people come here to see the museum because you care enough to keep this community alive and the museum alive. Thank you for that. Well thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thanks for listening. The Sascapes podcast is created by Kevin Power as part of the Culture Days Animateur program operated by Sas Culture. Funding to the cultural sector is provided through the Saskatchewan Lotteries Trust Fund for Sports, Culture and Recreation. If you want to hear more of these podcasts or to see the great work being done by other SAS culture animateurs, please visit www.iheartculture.ca. Special thanks to Paved Arts in Saskatoon for their technical support. Music for Sascapes is provided by Saskatchewan-born singer-songwriter Jeffrey Straker. There is no end to the stories to be told. So, until next time... <laughs>